I'm Denzel Muhammad, and this is JobMakers. What's the total foreign-born share of the U.S. population? What do you think it is? It's 13.7%. That's a fact. Now, do you believe me? Misinformation and disinformation about immigration in the U.S. is ubiquitous. And it's easy to fall victim to the short, false soundbites we keep hearing from politicians. For Professor James Witte, director of the Institute for Immigration Research, Getting the facts about U.S. immigration out to the public is one thing. Getting them to believe facts is another. The Institute for Immigration Research is a joint venture between George Mason University and the Immigrant Learning Center of Malden, Massachusetts, the co-producer of this podcast. One of the goals of his institute's work is to position the immigration data, research, and stories within a framework of inclusiveness, where Americans will be able to see that they are not disconnected from immigration. We all, U.S.-born and foreign-born, help power this country's economy, enrich its culture, and make it the powerhouse that it is. Professor Witte also helps explain the resistance to immigrants and facts about them, and how we can counter that in this week's JobMakers. Professor James Witte, Jim, welcome to JobMakers. I'm very glad to be here, Denzel. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Tell us a little bit about what you and the Institute for Immigration Research do and why this work is important today. Yeah, well, the Institute for Immigration Research uh, was created in 2012 uh, on the initiative and generous support of the Immigrant Learning Center. And then in partnership with George Mason University, we have grown the Institute over, I think, I guess we're going to have our 10-year anniversary at some point soon. Um, And, you know, what we do is we really try to highlight the various types of contributions that immigrants make uh, to America. Our focus is on America, um, immigrants to the United States, and uh, American U.S. immigration policy. And so there we've done a wide range a full gamut of topics that we have addressed. Those include things uh, at the very high skill level, like physicians or scientists, you know, as far as the Nobel Prize winners and where immigrants have made great contributions there. But then also we think about um, jobs that don't require the same degree of education and skill, um, you know, something like being a truck driver or the roles that a number of immigrants along with their native born um, compatriots played during uh, COVID-19 as essential workers, you know, cleaning, uh, cleaning hospitals, stocking grocery store shelves, all of that to show you know, that the immigrants are working shoulder to shoulder with the native born to um, sort of grow and will maintain get us through the pandemic, recover from it, and then eventually to grow the U.S. economy. And so part of what we, you know, our primary focus is on the economic contributions. And if you think about, you know, as we went into the pandemic and unemployment in the United States was under 4%, uh, that's a real signal that without 
our foreign-born workers, we would have been in real trouble. Economic growth would have slowed. And now as we pull ourselves out of the COVID-19 pandemic, we're still going to need those workers. You know, again, across the entire spectrum of the labor force. You know, beyond the economic, we've done a lot of work on civic engagement um, and the extent to which immigrants participate in uh, civic life in the United States, both as, you know, in very informal ways, you know, volunteering uh, with different civic organizations, and then also politically, you know, and again, representing, you know, we've seen an increase in uh, either immigrants or children of immigrants um, in politics. Uh, in the United States in the last 10 or 15 years. And that's really a good thing. You know, they're not called representatives for nothing. You know, that they represent a population. And the U.S. population right now is close to 14% foreign-born. And then you have to consider also the children of the foreign-born who are U.S. citizens, but then also part of their sort of cultural and social identity is tied to the background of their parents. And that strengthens and diversifies the United States. We also see important cultural contributions that immigrants, the foreign born, and their children are making to the United States and have made throughout our history, bringing in new ideas, new new dining options, new forms of art, you know, we did one of our first cultural projects was looking at immigrants in the arts. And you saw after World War II um, that painters from Germany and Austria had an enormous impact on the art world in the United States. And so this is not just today, you know, but throughout the course of our history, we see immigrants bringing in new ideas that strengthen and enrich uh, our culture, you know, just you know, the group BTS, um, they have revitalized McDonald's um, through a promotion that they're running uh, built around this Korean boy band. You know, so all of these things are influential and strengthen and, you know, build the resilience of American society. And this is all coming in through immigrants and their children. You bring up a lot of great points, including the fact that immigrants have impacted just every aspect of American life, uh, Mm -hmm. from sports to culture to our restaurants to the kinds of cuisines we take for granted that we have access to, um, as well as, you know, as your research has found, 28% of physicians in the U.S. are foreign-born. They make up nearly half of our agricultural workers. Um, And especially in this moment of pandemic and and the idea of recovery, we've really seen how immigrants have played a crucial role. And without them, we would not have been able to reach the point where we are today. I mean, just the fact that Pfizer and Moderna both have immigrant founders, and those are the two first vaccines that we had. Um, And you also mentioned the fact that immigrants are less than 14% of our population. And every time I poll uh, people on this, you know, what is the foreign-born share of the U.S. population? Everyone who's foreign-born. They come up with, you know, 50% and 35%. And they've been getting these messages that, you know, the idea of invasion, infestation, surge, uh, all these kinds of terms that are used to describe 
the influx of immigrants to the U.S. when it's it's always been a particular kind of flow. Um, what do you think is responsible for this kind of misinformation about immigrants in the U.S.? Well, I think part of it is, you know, and when you say misinformation, I know we've talked about this before, there's a distinction between misinformation and disinformation. And misinformation is uh, a lack of knowledge. Disinformation is bad information being propagated. Uh, so we can start with some of the misinformation. And this goes back you know, to something I see as a, a sort of an insight from kind of everyday sociology. You know, that people of my generation and a little bit younger, as we were growing up, the foreign-born population was about 5%. And so, yes, there has been an increase to get us close to 14%, which by historical standards is fairly normal. It's been that level before. But the perception leads people to think that there has been some kind of surge some rapid influx in uh, the foreign-born population, when in fact it's been relatively gradual. And the anomaly was in the 1960s when people didn't see that many foreign-born. And as our uh, immigration policy changed, we were able to bring back the, um, this group of new Americans, create a new group of uh, new Americans who are able to do exactly the sorts of things we've been talking about, contribute economically, civically, and culturally. Uh, you know, the fact that they're getting it up to 50%, you know, that's where the disinformation may come in, you know, where people then begin to throw out numbers. Um, you know, over the weekend, I saw a post from someone, someone with a, you know, a, you know, a college degree, uh, a well-educated young woman, who believes that 67% of the deaths from COVID-19 are among the vaccinated. Because this disinformation is being promoted, people are misled uh, and sucked into a set of false beliefs. And I think that's where the 50% um, of the United States being foreign born, that's where that may come from. And you talk about being misled. Um... And there's this tremendous perception that, you know, one person comes into the country, gets a job, that automatically means one person in the country is denied a job. Uh, I don't want to get into the economics of this, but just it's not a zero-sum game. No. You know, the more workers you have working, the economy expands and provides more jobs for more people. Isn't that right? Yes, that's absolutely true. And that's what, you know, that we know. Um from decades of research that it's small and medium-sized businesses that create jobs, you know, and that small and medium-sized businesses are more likely to be founded by or run by the foreign-born. And, you know, again, we're not going to go too much into the economics, but in a certain sense, when you get to be a large business, uh, particularly a publicly traded large business, you know, part of your aim to please your shareholders is actually to reduce employment, to think about ways to cut your cost of labor, to rationalize production, to introduce techniques of automation. And that doesn't create jobs, you know, so that it's not when a foreign born individual comes here that they um, take jobs 
they actually make jobs. And I think that's what we have to somehow convince people and fight against the misinformation and disinformation about what's the role that the foreign-born and their children uh, play in the U.S. economy. And that's really what this podcast is about. It's about job makers who are immigrant entrepreneurs. Immigrants Mm -hmm. are creating jobs in the U.S. Um, But, you know, you talked about in the 60s that the foreign-born share of the U.S. population was about 5%. And it's now almost 14%. People have seen a rise in people who look different, people who have accents, people who don't readily know the English language. Refugee resettlement has introduced foreign-born populations to very much non-traditional gateway cities and and, and states. Um, We see right now um, the fastest growing immigrant populations in places like West Virginia and North Dakota. So people are being introduced to immigration um, in a very, very sort of sometimes abrupt, uh, sometimes dramatic way. And we get to this point of people being uncomfortable uh, with the idea of you talk about diversity being such a net positive in such a globalized world. Um, This exchange of ideas, the fact that, you know, so many of our Nobel Prize winners uh, were foreign born. Um, But what at the core, makes people uncomfortable about this whole idea, this whole matter. Well, and I think, you know, you bring up a good point uh, with the refugees, you know, and part of that is because uh, refugee resettlement often happens in places where there have not been many foreign born. And yes, that may lead to uncomfortableness in the beginning, but it actually, I think, in the longer run, produces acceptance and familiarity uh, with something that's new. And I think that's really uh, one way that we can promote uh, greater integration and understanding of the foreign born is through exposure and contact with one another. There's a lot of research that shows that the, uh, the more contact you have with immigrants and immigrants of different types, and you're absolutely right, you know, that the immigrants of yesterday were often um, white and from Western Europe. And that's very different today. Um, But when you think about the contact people begin to have um, with the foreign born, that's what breaks down some of these barriers. And I think where uh, there is a real potential is as we think about some of these refugees that are coming now uh, who share you know, they have completely different religious beliefs. They often have, you know, are of a different race, and clearly a different ethnicity. And I think that provides an opportunity, you know, for people who have had little exposure that when in a small town uh, in West Virginia, you have some refugees there who, in a sense, become unavoidable. You know, that you have contact with them, you know, that they're working in the community. And you begin to realize this sense of <clears throat> commonality and common humanity um, that I think can only be broken down or introduced through daily contact. People seem to forget that, you know, families, no matter where they are, where they come from or what their background is, they have 
the same desires and ambitions. You know, parents want their children to be healthy. Uh, parents want their children to do well at school. Parents want their children to do better than, <clears throat> better than they did. Um, children just want to, you know, have friends and be social. And that is something that is common across, you know, no matter what your background is, no matter what your religion is. People seem to to not recognize that. And I think this idea that you have of, of you know, more contact, more contact, more visibility and seeing how these families operate uh, will help to mend that, I hope. Awareness is one thing, but inclusiveness is another. This idea of inclusiveness of, you know, not just knowing about your neighbor and his family, but feeling as though you have this commonality, feeling as though you can do things together. And this is both social and cultural as well as economic. You know, immigrants are not a separate entity. They are part of our society. They're part of our economy. They're part of the wheels that, that, that turn and make us an innovation hub um, and make us the greatest economy in the world. Uh, so people seem to forget that when you talk about immigrants, you're talking about yourselves yeah. as well. So talk to a little bit about this idea of inclusiveness. Yeah, inclusiveness, I think, is so important. You know, and I think we're seeing in the United States and around the world a renewed emphasis on inclusiveness. And I would say, you know, in, in the U.S. at least, it really uh, got a large push from the Me Too movement. And the fact that uh, women were not being accorded the same respect and opportunity uh, in the workplace were being exploited and taken advantage of. Um, and then we also saw it, you know, with the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and the revelations. You know, and with Me Too, it began with revelations. And the revelations that began most notably um, with uh, the George Floyd killing but also other incidents of abuse of African-Americans at the hand of the police. And, you know, there people began to say, you know, why are we not given and accorded the same uh, privileges and, and rights and also responsibilities of the mainstream population? And so that led to a call for inclusiveness. And I think it's very important that... Um, that we, as we think about immigrants and the inclusiveness, inclusiveness of immigrants in American society, that we can look back at what worked and what didn't work with the Me Too movements and the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, that there were certainly ways that um, people called attention to um, to sort of ex to exploitation, to things that were not working, that people were excluded. And at the same time, there was an understanding that if these people were included, we would all benefit. You know, and I think that's really the fullness of inclusiveness that we should focus on. Even when presented these the facts about immigration and these stories and these images, um, you know, I think about George Floyd and it was support for Black Lives Matter you know, skyrocketed because I think primarily because there was this visual, there was this video. And it sort of reminds me of the migrant kids in cages. When people saw these images, you know, it 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 forced a real react emotional reaction. And and there was tremendous backlash against 
the kinds of policies that would allow something like that, uh, which led to actual change in, in the rules. Um, so number one, does it take something as dramatic as that to force um, a change in people's thinking? And even when presented these facts, these stories, these images, you know, some people still, you know, interpret it in a different way or refuse to believe. And what, what causes that? I think, you know, that's a good point. And it really gets, you know, as you know, at the uh, Institute for Immigration Research, we've had this discussion for years since our almost since our very beginning about the relative value of facts and data and stories. Um, and I think through our work and the work of many others, we've developed what should be, and I say should be, convincing facts and convincing stories. But as you point out, they don't always work. And I think, you know, and this is why we've been talking and thinking a lot about inclusiveness, um, that the real, uh, as dramatic as the facts may be, and because I believe in numbers, facts are often dramatic, uh, but also the stories, that those can be very, very dramatic. But if I can't put myself into that situation, if I can't imagine uh, my child uh, in that cage or uh, my partner as the person being abused and killed by the police, then it's still a bit remote. You know, that we really need to accept um, these convincing facts and stories as part of our own lives and sort of include us. And we have to include ourselves into what's happening uh, to these groups, whether they're immigrants, uh, immigrant children or minorities. We are the greatest economy in the world and we are a nation of immigrants. We've always had immigration to the U.S., and somehow we became the greatest economic power in the world. I think one thing probably has to do with the other. I would uh, absolutely agree. And I think understanding, uh, you had talked a little bit about the Irish. You know, when the Irish came to the United States, they were considered to be a different race. You know, that perceptions of race even change over time. Um, but as the Irish, the Italians, uh, other Southern Europeans, became integrated in the United States. And over time, they, their children, their descend, descendants become the native born. You know, and I think that's the point you're trying to make. And somehow we have to emphasize, you know, that there is almost a circular process where immigrants come into the country. Um, they gain a footing. Often that footing is accomplished through their own initiative. Other times it's facilitated through people who are already here. Um, but then when we, we move through the circle a little bit further, the people who are already here are those same immigrants and their children. And they're the ones who are going to facilitate and benefit from uh, the next group of new Americans. We should be celebrating the full diversity of our country. You know, and again, that's part of what inclusiveness is about, is understanding our strength comes through that diversity. Our strength comes from our diversity. Very well said. Professor James Whitty. Jim, thank you so much for joining us on JobMakers. It was a pleasure to be with you, Denzel. Take care.
Jobmakers is a weekly podcast about immigrant entrepreneurs produced by Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston, and the Immigrant Learning Center of Malden, Massachusetts, a not-for-profit that gives immigrants a voice. Thank you again for joining us for this week's fascinating story about immigrants and their contributions. If you know someone we should talk to, email Denzil, that's D-E-N-Z-I-L, at jobmakerspodcast.org. And leave us a review on your favorite streaming service. I'm Denzel Mohammed. Join us next Thursday at noon for another Jobmakers podcast.